You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and this is the second of two programs about the very idea and the uses of foundations in American life. It comes as my guest, historian Vartan Gregorian, formerly president of the New York Public Library, then of Brown University, and now of the prestigious Carnegie Corporation of New York, veritably a man for all intellectual seasons, celebrates Andrew Carnegie's formative foundation gifts of a century ago. And now I think what we ought to do is go back to where we left off last time. Vartan, uh, in the period between last week and this week, meaning in the last five minutes, you mentioned something that I, I hadn't the faintest idea about, that there are so many Carnegie, um, not foundations, but Carnegie creations. Mm-hmm. How many? What are they? Well, at least over 22, 22. You have Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, celebrated centennial. You have Carnegie Institution, uh, which is science in Washington, D.C., you have Carnegie Mellon University. You have uh, Carnegie in, uh, Foundation for Advancement of Teaching. You have Carnegie uh, Council on Ethics, which is going to celebrate its uh, centennial in 19, uh, 2014. You have uh, Carnegie uh, Trust for Scottish Universities, Carnegie Trust for UK Universities. You have many Carnegie Heroes Funds, because Carnegie was one of the first to recognize that ordinary citizens with great acts of courage should be rewarded or set examples. Uh, and then you have, uh, what did I forget? Carnegie Hall. Uh, which, uh, Carnegie Hall as well. Yes, yes, Carnegie Hall was created also by Andrew Carnegie, the only paying institution in order to be self-sufficient. Actually, in its inception, Mrs. Carnegie has major role to play. And then... Uh, what did I forget? I think my cover was it, but most of them are Carnegie Heroes Fund. Carnegie Museum, of course, in Pittsburgh, one of the great And all separate institutions. All separate institutions. One of the things we have done during this uh, past 10 years, we celebrate, in order to celebrate Carnegie Institute, we brought all organizations together. Every two years we come together in order to celebrate uh, Carnegie Medal of Philanthropy, which now has been given to many prominent philanthropists, both national and international uh, level. And this just uh, two, two week, almost two weeks ago, time passes fast, uh, we celebrated 10 individuals. Uh, we celebrated Lauder family, we celebrated Pritzker family, we celebrated the uh, Crown family. We celebrated Pierre and Pamela Omidyar, the founder of eBay. Uh, we celebrated uh, Danforth Foundation, Danforth family, and Fiona and Stan Drankemiller, a young, young couple who have done so much for brain science and so much other thing. And then, of course, in doing all of this, Fred Kavli, we did not forget, the great Norwegian immigrant who's based... And one thing occurred to me as I was reading this, and it was reinforced by Leonard Lauder, 
Most of them are descendants of immigrants, first or second generation, who have brought again faith in giving through philanthropy their foundations, reinvesting in America. So Andrew Carnegie's uh, creation itself on the private wealth been emulated by many, including the spirit, not exactly divide, give away all your wealth, but many have pledged to give at least half of their wealth while they're alive, which is remarkable. As yeah. I mentioned in the previous uh, section of this time, there will be $20 trillion intergenerational wealth transfer in America next two decades. Yes, but now, Vartan, let me, let, me, let me come down hard on a question. Yeah. I don't want to be biting the hand that no, feeds. That's all, no, you, uh, nobody's eating, so don't worry. <laughs> but what's the rationale for however many Carnegie institutions, groups yes. there are, for it to do all these things that are so important in our society? Aren't you taking away from the uh, sovereign power of our individual states or of the nation? Aren't you doing things that one might say, now that should be done by the federal government. That should be done by the state of California or the state of New yeah. York. Well, I'm glad you brought that issue up because I'm dying to tell you about that's what the answer to that is. Uh, as in your uh, book on Alexis de Tocqueville, we've gone that route before, when he came to America in 1830s and published, which is still today, still the classic book on American democracy, 1835, still is most important book written on American democracy. Voluntarism was considered to be natural. Government was considered artificial. As a matter of fact, you can see now whether it's we're 99% or uh, the Tea Party, they all are talking about not the government, but people to being in charge of their own destiny, direct democracy. And that's part of our tradition that people have always been in solving their problems, not saying let government do it. Of course, as I mentioned previously, two world wars and being a Cold War and being uh, in wars uh, constantly and being super, only superpower now and so forth is a costly enterprise which you cannot do without either taxing or mobilizing forces and also growth of our population, 300, 350 million now. Uh, it's not mom and pop operation anymore. It's not a small town anymore. We become ur urban, very complicated, multi-ethnic, multinational, a global society is right here, miniature level in the United States. So giving is not substitute for governing anymore. Giving is in many ways creating, trying to hold your own, satisfy your own local needs while allowing government to do national needs, interhighway and this and the railways and so forth. That was the concept of growing federalism, opening the West. One of the things we've discussed in the past, investing in the future was government's also duty. And next year, I hope we'll have a chance to discuss Moril Act, 150th anniversary of Moril Act. The year after, we should discuss National Academy of Sciences. In the middle of the tragic civil war in this United States of America, where 650,000 people, 600,000 people perished, 
1860s, President Lincoln was thinking about the future of America, investing in land-grant universities, creating a National Academy of Sciences. Try that to do any government now, any president would say, we have to think in terms of 50 years from now, uh, never mind taxes, never mind, I'm investing in this. It was forward thinking how local and national governments can work hand in hand together by combining the best of America. What has to be national issues and what has to be local. It's the local localism, voluntarism and giving that is the foundation of uh, not taking away from government, but investing alongside the government in order to be able to give the private individuals, private sector initiatives that could benefit the totality. Of yeah, but isn't that idea being used now yeah. by political candidates to say small government, not large, yes. our churches, our foundations, yes. our good volunteerism, yes. that we have our voluntary associations can do Is these that things. enough? Let's say $350 billion annually Americans contribute to charity, which is one time, and then philanthropic institution. If you use it as an endowment, let's say 10% of it would be $35 billion, 5% would be $17.5 billion. It doesn't make arithmetic uh, error column of federal budget. <laughs> it sounds nice in some areas, yes. But it's not a solution. It's the, one is incubator demonstration, the other is institutionalizing and pursuing it. So it's, what I'm saying is we no longer, I mentioned before, mom and pop local government. That's why it's remarkable that these two trends will continue in America. You don't want to give up your autonomy, your volunteers, right to volunteer action, to the government, and the government at the same time cannot absorb all of this without eliminating creative elements in our society. Look at all the orchestras we have. Look at all the museums we have. Most of them are primarily, with the exception of Washington-based, most of them are supported by private philanthropy. Look, some of the major research done in our hospitals or in our universities, done by private philanthropy. Look at great universities we have, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia. Uh, Columbia, of course, Please. Columbia, yes, Columbia, uh, and Cornell, I have to mention now, Brown, all the Ivy League, I have to mention once you started with, privately, created privately. But so is MIT, which started as land-grant university. People forget that. The MIT of the United States also is beneficiary of Lincoln's legacy. So I'm saying this alliance or partnership between the private and the public I hope always will continue because when public makes errors, private ones can try to repair or demonstrate or pick up and vice versa. Do you, which brings me to the question of uh, the times when, if there are such times, when the government refuses to act or says this action runs contrary to the public interest in this government's opinion. Mm -hmm. Do foundations find themselves in the position of picking up uh, a position that the government refuses? Well, well foundations... And should they? Yeah, foundations always have done. They're not there as anti-government forces. They're there as society, societal forces. I don't understand that. Well, uh, the point is, 
that foundations have the right to right of assembly, right, under the law, to form their own organizations, to do what they think is good. But they're not independent. We have agencies that are overlooking. Attorney General in each state is to supervise the fact that you, when you filed for a charitable trust or, or organization, that you're going to implement this. It's not going to be self-serving. There are abuses, yes. We find you sometimes uh, certain foundations abuse by having husband as a president, daughter as vice president, and so forth and so on. But those abuses should not obscure the fact what a great role foundations, be it religious foundations, be it secular foundations, are doing to cement or to provide strength to our society's creative talent. It's that creative talent, ideas, that emerge from the private sector. Because public sector can encourage through national uh, endowment for uh, democracy, national endowment for health, national institute of uh, health, uh, and national endowment for arts and humanities can create some kind of pool for talent. But private sector is also contributing alternative way of doing things, challenging, and also creating expertise. You know, many of the people that are serving in government have come from some of the think tanks that foundations have supported, be it conservative, liberal, or independent. So foundations are not on the margin, but rather are central to provide that kind of critical thought, critical element to come. Otherwise, all you have to do is have accept governmental policies as given without being able to criticize. Vartan, what happened to the, uh, the anti-foundation sentiment in the Congress of a decade ago, perhaps? Yes. What well, happened there? Well, uh, it was 1969 odd that foundations are accountable. They ought to be. Right. Keppel, one of uh, uh, Carnegie presidents, uh, said foundations must have glass pockets. Everybody should see what they're doing. And I adhere to that completely. Foundations are accountable because they're tax-exempt organizations. Foundations are accountable to their boards and to supervising organizations, including responsible for attorney general of each state, in order to implement what their mission is honorably, honestly, and to be accounted for. That sentiment is still there. There are abuses, yes, but abuses can be dealt with. But one of the things now in current situation, the one sector that keeps foundations in the giving is religious institutions. If government goes after foundations, it has by necessity to go after all the religious organizations. And they cannot afford to take all religious groups so secular foundations, side by side with religious foundations, are in the same business of trying to do good. Not because of government alone, they have sanctioned, but because they like to serve the public, the nation, and local communities, as well as international communities, from issues of peace, issues of disease, issues of culture, issues of education, all of this which we need. As I mentioned, with 1.6 million uh, nonprofit 
or independent institutions, one out of 11 Americans now work for nonprofits. There are more people working for higher education now than automobile, steel, whatever is left, textile, whatever is left of all the industries combined. Now, this is good? No, I wish more people were in the industrial thing. But I'm just saying under the circumstances in this age of globalization, it's remarkable that we have, we're investing still in knowledge, we're investing still in health and culture and all the organizations. What are the big problems that you see now? Uh, you're celebrating uh, and will be celebrating for the next couple of years, yes. the, the centennial of the various Carnegie mm -hmm. Group's creations. What do you see as the big problems or problem areas for foundations in America? Number one problem is we have to collaborate, as I mentioned. Cooperate and collaborate. Is that, is that tough to get? It's tough to get, but it's necessary, like everything else. Years ago, it was tough to collaborate among library, libraries, but the Internet has made that irrelevant issue. You know, if you don't want to collaborate, the source is available from elsewhere. Uh, second one is needs are growing in America. Poverty. We have 50 million poor people. The fact that we don't use any, the word poverty, poor, do not appear in our vocabulary. We all are middle class now, and rich are called their, uh, what, job creators. They're not rich people. We have, we, we have middle class, but we don't have upper class. We don't have lower class. And therefore, we ignore. Appalachia report now, if it's issued about poverty in America, will be equally bad. We have, we're a nation in debt. We're trying to do now do a lot more with less. And that's going to be the biggest challenge, foundation and other, how to do more with less. And as long as we don't run out of less, we'll do all right. So that's another challenge. Then, of course, education, education, education is our greatest challenge. We cannot lose 50% of our youth to waste it from education system. Is that what the figure 50 is? 50%. High school dropout, 25, 30% uh, college dropout. We need, we're in, in the age of knowledge, we need investment in knowledge. And that's the biggest challenge for all the foundations, how to keep the fabric of American democracy vibrant, how to invest in talent in America, how to not allow infrastructure of our country to collapse, how to keep infrastructure of higher education alive. Uh, those are challenges and how to collaborate among institutions, not just foundations, among institutions. Would it be uh, remiss of me to say uh, that points the way to being political in your orientation? Because what you're talking about is a need that seems to me to be met only on the level of the nation and of the government. Well, the nation and government are always there. I mean, every, every American is political. To be citizen is to be political. If you don't care what's happening in our nation, you can be quiet. Or I don't like, by the way, the silent majority. Si silent majority in Ulysses refers to the dead. dead. We don't want a nation of non-participants. But we also want people to deal with facts. That's another challenge for foundations and education institutions. Facts are not relativistic. 
Opinions can be relative, but facts have to be ascertained. We are in the 21st century age of science, yet we have anti-science sentiments. We are in an age when people love gadgets and technology, but they don't like science. And we have to educate our nation in terms of science and math, plus English, so we can have the same vocabulary to understand each other. But most importantly also, we have to teach about America as a democracy. It's remarkable, and I think it's almost sinful to live in this nation without knowing its institutions, without knowing its constitution, without knowing what does constitute to be a citizen of the United States, uh, what rights, but also what obligations one has. I was just uh, last night hearing Matthew, uh, uh, Matthews, new book on uh, Kennedy, that, uh, oh, right. yeah, well, evidently, it's attributed Kennedy's famous saying to headmaster of Chod, I don't care where the words come. The problem is we have to see this nation not as a giver, but also we have to see ourselves as a contributor. Otherwise, Andrew Carnegie's words that aristocracy is uh, like potatoes, the best part is underground. I don't want America to become museum of capitalism or museum how things were. I want to be, always remember America, how things are going to be better for the people of the United States as citizens. Debates I don't mind, arguments I don't mind, but central issue which is non-negotiable is the future of our nation, future of our people, with social justice, knowledge, knowledge, learning, learning, curiosity, 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 and also to love this country for what it is because of its constitution and rights it has given to everybody, citizen and immigrant who have come here. That's, that's what the essence is. If uh, you don't uh, want to contribute, but don't at least oppose. But when you oppose, understand what the ramifications are. I think more than ever we need education of civics, science, as well as uh, mathematics. Or our schools have to be places we learn rather than places we store people and train people alone. It's not age of training. It's also going to be age of knowing and knowledge. Vatan, do you think your feelings about this uh, are related to your own status Absolutely. as someone who came to this country? Absolutely. When I became citizen of the United States, I thought I was marrying this country. Really, it was a religious ceremony uh, where you're taking an oath to abandon every and to adhere to, to choose. It was a very moving experience. And when I went to Monticello to give a speech at the uh, Jefferson's University, uh, I mean, at Jefferson's residence of house monument, I was so moved to tears because here is from all over the world, people are there taking a note to United States with what it represents you know, liberty, equality, and uh, pursuit of happiness, all of this, plus a constitution, plus a bill of rights guaranteeing individual rights. But individual, as we discussed before, from Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who coined the term individualism to describe American character, that individualism was not selfishness, egoism, egotism, but rather had two components. One was public good in mind, and the other personal good, and trying to reconcile both elements 
under the category individualism. Now I find that balance is not right. Self-interest is not enough, but you also have to think of the community. You have to think of society, you have to think of nation, not for the present alone, but the future, which everybody's saying, we don't want our grandchildren to be indebted, but we don't want our grandchildren also to be ignorant. Martin, I began to teach American history, I grant, 65 years ago. Uh, I think what you've just said would be un have been understood by my students then. I don't think it would be understood widely, as widely, by my students today. Well, then we, are, we as professors, teachers, we've done a poor job because it's the concept of citizen, it's the concept of uh, what is good in America that makes people loyal to America and keeps them. I never have stressed the money, making money or making a living, making a profit. Uh, America is a place you become rich. America is a place where you live free. You live honorably and under the law, not because you're not a subject, you're a citizen. In the one minute sign I just got, will you tell me that the Carnegie Corporation of New York is investing its funds in citizenship education? Yes, we're investing in education. We're investing in international peace. Uh, we're uh, investing in how to make immigrants who are here as uh, on a permanent resident to become citizens because you cannot be spectator, you have to be participant in our democracy, especially now. And uh, we also are investing in science, knowledge of science, and K-16 in order to educate as many Americans as well as we can, as well as we ought to. And that's the perfect place to say thank you very much for joining me again on the Thank you for having me again. And thanks too to you in the audience. I hope you'll join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.